There's nothing like being in a country when there's a revolution going on. I, 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 that happened to me. Really? Yeah. When? In South America when I was a teenager in Peru, and I was in Chile when there was a, right before the overthrow of the government. You know, I remember when there were the riots in L.A., and they brought in military, and I go, I felt nostalgic. Everyone's going, oh, my God. And I go, oh, it's like my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this before. Faded? Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action! Hey guys, and welcome to a long overdue episode of Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, fictional bar, and fictional club in TV and film, as well as talk about the screenwriting process. I am your host, Monis Rose. Now, that little clip at the beginning was from our guest of honor. His name is Barry Blousing. Why is Barry on the podcast? Well, he helped co-write, co-create one of the best fictional restaurants in all of comedy films. That movie is called Coming to America. It stars Eddie Murphy, and that fictional restaurant is called McDowell's. Anyway, Barry and I, we dive deep once again into the creation of McDowell's, as well as one of the most interesting tidbits of this entire interview is Barry points out that the movie that you see with Eddie Murphy is a first draft screenplay. Yes, yes, I'm going to let Barry take it from there. Anyway, without any further ado, here is the review of McDowell's and our interview with Barry Blaustein. Guys, Welcome back to another episode of Restaurant Fiction. Us at Restaurant Fiction, we just took a trip. We took a trip to Queens. Yes, we're in Queens, exactly Elmhurst. Elmhurst. Now, we were actually not trapped in Elmhurst, but we were lost in Elmhurst. And our only saving grace, our only safe restaurant, if you will, our only safe refuge was a place called McDowell's. McDowell's. How did we even see McDowell's? Well, they had two golden arcs. Please, please do not be confused with golden arches. That is McDonald's. No, these are golden arcs. Anyway, we didn't care. We were hungry. It was dark. It was dank. It was kind of muggy outside. We were kind of scared. So we went inside and we were greeted with some amazing customer service. Uh, Some gentleman with a very deep, thick Southern African accent. I do not know the actual country of origin, but their smiles, their positive energy just radiated the place. We even felt incredibly safe when some alleged muggers tried to rob the place, and these employees of the month, if you will, took them down with a smile, with a smile. So what's the food like? What's the menu like? Well, it's fast food. You're going to get what's called a Big Mick. Yes, a Big Mick. What is that? That's exactly uh, pretty much a Mac, but no sesame seeds on the bun. 
there are some other accoutrements. We found there was um, a third pounder with cheese, queen-size soft drinks, filet cod You know, for the kitties, there's a happy grub meal. What does the food taste like? Well, it does taste like a Big Mac, but... Actually, we really kind of like the buns without the sesame seeds. Personally, I think sesame seeds is just an additive you really don't need. Maybe if you toasted them, you'll get some more flavor. But other than that, I don't like them sprinkled on my tuna tartare. I don't like them sprinkled, you know, on some brown rice or some rice. No, leave the sesame seeds out. How do we really even know it's kind of like a McDonald's? Well, the employees were reading a McDonald's employee handbook. Even if you do compare it to McDonald's, us at Restaurant Fiction, we actually don't. We don't at all. What do we compare it to? We compare it to a Wendy's. Anyway, Barry, Barry Blaustein, one of the co-writers of Coming to America. What did you think of the review? What are your thoughts and what would you like to add? Or It probably reminded you of a Wendy's because it was a Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> what happened when uh, we wrote, David Sheffield and I wrote Coming to America, and what happened is... When they were looking for a place to film it, they bought out a, for not that much money, like $50,000. We were surprised. You wanted to go to the guy and go, you can get more money out of us than that. For $50,000, we owned them, uh, Wendy's, and they converted it to McDowell's. You know, this was all done with McDonald's permission. And the first day of filming, there's a guy who owned the McDonald's about three blocks away and came up and goes, what the hell is this? When we wrote the script and we handed it in, Paramount said, well, we'll never get McDonald's permission. They said, it'll look like they're trying to stop a black businessman. I go, but this guy's obviously ripping them off. I think they'll see past that. And McDonald's, people read it. They only had one note, one change, which was when the robber comes in, we wrote, Kasia takes some money and puts it into a McDowell's bag. And they, can, they said, can it just be a plain white bag? And we said, well, okay. All right, we'll do that for you. It was a big story in New York Post and Daily News last year, two years ago. They knocked it down. It no longer exists. But now there are all these pop-up McDowell's. There are. There was actually one recently in Los Angeles. Yeah. Did you go? People asked me, I, go, I drove by there and I saw a long line and I said, fuck it, I created the real thing. So, uh, <laughs> At what point in breaking story and character and coming to America does food and restaurants come into play? You know, we were pitched a story by Eddie. In the beginning, I think it was Eddie's idea that he, he owned uh, McDowell's. So you found the McDowell's. How much research went into McDowell's or even field research? Well, you know, it's interesting. John Amos, who played, you know, the manager of McDowell's, when he came in, he said he actually worked at a McDonald's and managed a McDonald's, and he knew how to do all that stuff about flipping burgers and all this stuff. She so says, you don't even have to train me. Uh, how involved were you in the day-to-day -day, uh, creation of Coming to America? Well, we, Dave and I wrote the script. We got very spoiled. From the time we pitched the idea to the time the movie came out was less than a year. For better or for worse, that's the first draft up on the screen. No. Yeah, that's the first draft, except for one or two minor, minor, minor changes. Wait, so are you saying the powers that be at Paramount just... Let's do it. Yeah, we were pitched in, in mid-July. We wrote the script in five, six weeks. We handed in Labor Day weekend. We handed in on a Friday. Monday, Paramount was closed because of Labor Day. 
And Tuesday, we got a call. We're going, we're shooting in January, and you're coming out next July, fourth weekend. So it really spoiled us. That doesn't work now. No, no, it very rarely worked back then. And, you know, the film maybe would have been better without more drafts, but sometimes drafts, you know, it could have gotten worse too, so. Wow. And do you mind me, this is just historic. Was, was Sherry Lansing at the helm? No, no, Ned Tannen, who's no longer around, who was great to deal with. My favorite executive I've ever worked with. Brutally honest, brutally honest, because while other executives will talk around the problem, he'll just say, here's the problem. Besides the business mindset, did he also know story? He knew enough to say yes to this project. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, in this case, he knew story. You mentioned you wrote with your partner, David. What are some tips you have for any writing team? Be kind. <laughs> you know, a writing partnership is like, it's like a marriage. And there's good times in a marriage and there's bad times in a marriage and rough times. And I like writing with people because they're there to say, sometimes you'll have an idea and you'll go, I don't think this is really works. And they'll go, no, there's, there's something in there. And it's good to throw things off someone. The important thing to remember, it's not whether it's, his line that's in there, or it's my line. It's what's the best line. And now with so many movies, you know, they bring in people to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. I've shared credit with, like on Nutty Professor, Nutty Professor 2, with other writers. And people go, what parts did you write? And I go, you know, what are the parts you liked? That's the parts I wrote. What are the parts you didn't like? The other people wrote that. How many rewrites do you do on a project in general? Well, before we hand it in, a script in, we've done three or four rewrites our, our, ourselves. There's one film that was never made, almost made. We did about 20 rewrites on it over three decades. I wish Universal would give us another crack at it so we could say it's four decades project. <laughs> but there's a certain point when you rewrite it after a while, you do lose perspective. And sometimes things need to go backwards to go forward. So not every rewrite is a, a movement forward but sometimes you need to see where the holes are and all that stuff. But they'll rewrite you to death. You know, the thing in Hollywood, they'll kill you with encouragement. Uh, not killing you with encouragement, they're telling you to go fuck yourself. <laughs> what is it about food and restaurants that mesh so well with comedy? There's always dynamics in families when they go in a family. Sometimes the only time everybody's all together is when they're eating. And when they go to a restaurant... They're sort of suppressing their anger and then trying to act because they're being observed. And so they try to suppress their true feelings about each other. And there can be a powder keg and things can erupt with true feelings can come out and, and witnessed by other people. And what can food and a restaurant say about characters? The way they eat. Everybody eats differently. Even if they eat with their mouth open, if they eat very fastidiously, will tell you different things. You're looking for stuff where... Always actions reveal what characters are really like. And just think about the people you know and how differently they eat. I used to have a friend who blew his nose on a tablecloth, you know, and it would be like disgusting. <laughs> and I was like, I, I can't even go out with you. Yeah, people have their rituals around food. And how can a writer make a restaurant or bar more than just a vehicle for characters to talk? It helps if you make the restaurant very specific. What does going to this restaurant say about these characters. How has your story-telling uh, style changed throughout the years? Less jokey, I think. 
more character driven, not jokes for joke's sake. Because a joke for joke's sake, unless it's an incredible joke, when they bomb, they're terrible. We've all seen movies where it's, we're supposed to laugh and, and this is dead silence. You know, as you get older, you, your sense of humor changes and evolves too. Where do you think it is now? I still love a good fart joke. <laughs> you went from late night skit show to writing features, scripted TV in the US and even in Russia, as well as unscripted documentaries. Any advice for writers who want a varied career in Hollywood versus and not and they don't want to be pigeonholed in one space? Then go do something different. The project I'm proudest of is Beyond the Mat with the wrestling documentary. When I told my agents and managers and lawyer I wanted to do a, a documentary, they're going, oh my God, are you crazy? Why do you want to do something that different? I go, I know there's a great documentary in this. And I want to do it. And it changed my career and changed the perception of me. So you have to take charge. I teach now and I tell my students, you have to be assertive. You determine the fate of your career. You don't let someone just come to you. If you sit around waiting for it to change with someone offering you a project that will change it, it's never going to happen. You've got to go make it happen. Where do wrestlers go to eat? Did they even have a hangout? A bar or a club or a restaurant? Yeah, wrestlers are funny to watch eat, you know? Because they'll eat enormous portions. They'll order fish with no oil, cook Nile butter and steamed vegetables and all this, and the healthy ones. And then they'll have like 20 beers. On one side, it's very healthy. On the other side, it's like, you know, it's a lot healthier for you to cut down your beer consumption. But they're also on the road a lot. So, you know, they go from night to night to night to night. So they're traveling. When they're done wrestling, they're usually... The only place open is fast foods. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Well, I'd say pro wrestling. I still watch it. You know, 95% of the time I'm going, I can't believe I'm watching this. But there's about 5% where I go, I can't believe people don't like this. If they saw this the way I saw it, they would love it. I saw something the other night and I showed my fiance. I'm going, this is why I love it. And it's just absurd and it was funny and it was just ridiculousness of it. Is it the storytelling? Is it the um yeah the absurd, the zaniness of how the Undertaker is even still on the ring? <laughs> yeah, well, no. The Undertaker doesn't do it for me, but uh, <laughs> no offense, nice guy. Because I don't like when the characters are played like dead people and all this stuff. I like when they play human beings. I just like the absurdity of it and the theatricality of it and the athleticism too. When it all works together, it's it's great. I mean, I love the interviews. Whenever I see an actor play a wrestler, usually, you know, they're, they're screaming and yelling and all, and, ah, I'm going to get you, and, and they're not like that. And most of them are quiet. Most of them are kind and thoughtful. The first rest time I ever went backstage to a wrestling match, there was a guy, there used to be a wrestler called the One Man Gang, who was a big guy, burly guy, looked like a motorcycle biker, was bald, tattooed, shaved head with a mohawk. And he was had reading glasses on, and he goes, can you hold this for me? i got to go out. And it was a book of poetry by E.E. E. Cummings. And then I said, there's something in this world. What advice would you give to a smart, driven, emerging writer? Don't give up. Don't give up. you got to be resilient. you got to be persistent. If you have, you need, you need talent. I presume that you have talent. And you have to have some business sense, which is just common sense. And you... They're just going to knock you down a lot, and you're going to hear no a lot, and you've got to be resilient and go. Someone will say yes, and if it's not this project, a lot of mistakes 
young writers make is they have that one idea and they pitch it and they pitch it and they pitch it and they pitch it and it's rejected and it's rejected and rejected. And three years later, they're still pitching and, and you're like going, come up with a new idea. Come on, that can't be the only idea you have. What advice should this emerging writer ignore? There are no simple solutions and no simple, not, there's not just one way to write a movie. I tell my students, any of you have written, uh, any of you read any of those how to write screenplay books, should burn them. There's no formula to writing a good movie. It was a formula and then anybody could do it and every movie would be good. And most of these people who wrote these books, most of them haven't had movies made. So you're going, if it's that easy, it comes down to this formula, they, they, would, have, they would have had success. What are bad recommendations you hear in your profession? Bad advice is, well, write what's popular. Hollywood, whether they're aware of it or not, students are looking for new voices. And if you write something that's different and unique, it'll capture their attention a lot more than just, no, this is another version of something that I've seen before. Develop your voice. How does one keep consistently creative and not plateau? You know, people ask me, where do you get your ideas? I go, I have no idea, because if I did, I'd go there all the time. You got to challenge yourself. You got to remain loose. If you're ever sitting around going, what would be a good idea? What would be a good idea? Nothing comes from that. But if you're sitting around bullshitting with friends and just talking about life and, oh, this happened to me once or this, or things spark in your heads. I, I find I get a lot of ideas in the shower. All right. So you've written television for both U.S. and Russia. I was an advisor there. What are some key differences between both? I understand English. I don't understand Russian. That's the big difference. I worked for a great company in Russia. I worked on an original Russian show. And it turned out to be the biggest hit in the history of Russian television. And the first American to win the Russian equivalent of the Emmy. Not a great ceremony. Not, you know, people were winning awards and it looked like very thank you very much and all this and I'm like you're in show business be happy it's okay to be happy uh, I used to say about Russia it's where hope goes to die no. <laughs> but, no. but the company that I worked for was a really interesting company it was started by three guys who met in an improv group in college one was a Muslim one was a Christian one was a Jew it sounds like the beginning of a, a grandpa joke and one guy became a writer after college, one became a lawyer, and the one I worked with became a detective. And he had the best story sense of anybody I've ever met. But he would tell you exactly why characters would do things. And when I got there, I had to learn about Russian culture and things like that, modern Russian culture. I was told there were any restrictions on what we could write. They said the two restrictions were you couldn't write any jokes about World War II, you couldn't show kids having sex, you could see a kid coming out from under the covers, a girl coming out from under the covers, and that's fine. We just couldn't have them <laughs> show the actual physical act of sex, teen sex. And I said, that's fine, too. And the show we did was considered daring and honest and truthful and was funny. And as a matter of fact, the vice minister of education called on Putin to throw the show off the air because she says it was a bad example for Russian youth. And it's the only good thing I can say about Putin. Putin said, I have better things to do, and I like the show. I think it's very funny. <laughs> wow. And I found these people great to work with. They gave total freedom. The network, even before the show aired, gave us total freedom. It was, it was a great situation. Here's the most important question, though. How's the food? This shocking thing in Moscow. 
Great city for burgers. What? Great burgers in Moscow. Uh, you know, Russian food is every day I, I ate at the studio, and even the hottest days of summer, they have soup. What are your favorite restaurants in L.A.? You've lived here now for some time. There's a restaurant downtown called Hock and Hoof, sort of combination of Vietnamese and French food. Best sea bass, best French toast I've ever had. I think it opened about a month and a half ago. What are your favorites? I kind of like it old school. I really enjoy Musso and Frank's. Well, I like Musso and Frank's because I, I can be called kiddo there. <laughs> You're called kiddo. <laughs> kiddo. <laughs> there. It's the only place the average age is death. Now, where, where do you go for fried chicken? We're talking like Korean fried chicken, or are we talking like American Southern fried? I'll, I'll go with both. Culver City, there's a place called Honey Kettle. Oh, I, Southern fried chicken. There's a place on 6th Street just east of Western, a Korean chicken place that's real good. Uh, I think it's like a chain. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce it, Coin Chung. Yes, that's yes. it. Have you been there yet? I've been there, but that's... It's really hot. I mean, I used to be a season ticket holder to the Clippers, and I used to go there sometimes for the game, and my mouth would stop burning by about the fourth quarter. And, you know, it would be like I'd be watching the games. Why are you perspiring so much? <laughs> I mean, I like Popeyes. <laughs> <laughs> With those buttered biscuits. I, was like, I like There's nothing like Tuesday night at Popeyes. It's weird because Chinese food's better in New York. But Japanese food is better here. And so where do you go for Mexican? So I just go for like taco truck. Great, ta- great taco truck. I think it's called Leo's. On I Venice. love Leo's. Man, I passed by. I was fl- flew back and the flight was delayed. I came in at 3 in the morning last week. And I passed by Leo's at 3 o'clock. And there was a frigging long line there. I'm going, it's amazing. Barry is preaching the gospel, guys. They have... Some of the biggest El Paso store you've ever seen, they're rotating, and the pineapple on the El Paso are just dripping, marinating, and these two guys with these gigantic machetes are just hacking. They're not hacking big, huge hunks. No, it's the tiniest slivers as if their machetes were a meat slicer. It's one of these places I want to go, you know, you got charge a lot more for this food, and <laughs> people would pay for it. Of all the movies and projects you've worked on, which project had the best food? When I worked on Saturday Night Live, we had good food. There's usually a dress rehearsal at 7.30 or 8 o'clock. And there's a meal that's served at 6 o'clock, a catered meal. And I remember John Madden, the ex-football coach and announcer, he was hosting. And he turned to me and goes, Barry, this is just like the feeling was in the locker room before the Super Bowl. And I became like a 12-year-old fan in front of him. I went, really, John? Really? <laughs> Thank you very much, Barry, for that. That was a sensational interview, a sensational fireside chat. If you want to hear, listen to Barry Moore, you know, a continuation of uh, Barry's genius, he teaches. He teaches at Chapman University. So uh, hopefully you can either audit or take a class uh, as a grade. I don't know. Um, Got to look up, I guess, Chapman University for that as well as if you want to see any of Barry's work, uh, his plethora of work, including any number of his hits from Coming to America to uh, The Nutty Professor and The Nutty Professor 2 or Beyond the Mat, go to his IMDb page, then stream it, download it, buy it, whatever you need to do. It's all good. It's all brilliant. And as for me, you can always 
go to any of these podcast episodes on iTunes. Obviously, we're on other medias, mediums as well, Google Play, Stitcher, etc. Or go to our website, www.restaurantfiction.com. My name is Monis Rose, and as always, guys, keep it real, keep it fresh, and keep it on the flip side. Cut to exterior, interior, restaurant, bar, club, day, night. Lowe's is here to help pros put more toward their bottom line with special Labor Day savings on what you need to get the job done. Like $40 off your choice of a DeWalt 12-volt max drill or 12-volt max impact driver featuring DeWalt's all-new 12-volt battery platform, now just $99. And whether updating a property or building new homes, save up to 15% off select custom windows and doors. Whatever the day, whatever the job, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 9-1 U.S. only. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's largest mortgage lender. I've got great news. Mortgage interest rates have dropped. So if you're thinking about buying a home, right now is the time to lock that low rate, even before you find the home of your dreams. With our exclusive Rate Shield approval, the low rate you lock today is protected for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. With a Rate Shield approval, if rates go up, your low rate stays locked. But if rates go down, you get that new, even lower rate. Either way, you win. Talk to us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com to take advantage. Here's another great reason to work with us. For a record nine years in a row, J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in the nation in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination. Again, to lock in today's low mortgage interest rate and get the security of our exclusive rate shield approval, call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year fixed rate loans. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030.